So they'll be called to the set in just a moment. Set. Away, Freeman out well, a mighty roar. Samantha Stozer in straight sets is the champion of the United States Open. Here's Aloisi for a place in the World Cup. It's episode eight of The Bench. And who said it wouldn't last? Well, a lot of people said, but we've got to number eight in our, uh, well, is it the eighth chapter, I guess? Sure, why not? Well, I couldn't do it. Without my delightful, enthusiastic, free-spirited, amazing, at times, co-host, Bechdel. You know what upsets me, Dave? That every week you have to write that down. It's just not how you <laughs> naturally feel about me. <laughs> You're revealing all the show secrets to our audience of how, how scripted we are. Well, Dave, speaking of <laughs> scripts, though, I've got a question without notice for you. So... Today, down at the Melbourne Football Club training, there was a celebrity there. Her name was Natalie Portman. Do you know who Natalie Portman is? Yes, Dan? famous from uh, movies such as uh, V for Vendetta. And she was Queen Amidala in Star Wars. Oh, Look at go. me knowing things. Hmm. Anywho, um, what I would like to know is if you were a sports star, which I know you fancy yourself as, mm. which celebrity would you like to pop down and watch you practice? Oh, that's a good one. Thank you. Um... Well, from the movie yeah. areas, I'm going to say Meryl Streep. Oh, you'd like her to watch your I performance. Would, I would love Meryl Streep being down there. I feel like she could, she would throw a bit of shade on me if I fail. Oh, she would. Like, she'd get all Devil Wears Prada on you and be like, <laughs> that's not a run out, David. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you call yourself a butsman, do you? That's not <laughs> Meryl Streep at all. Um, no. The other one would be Eddie Redmayne. Oh. Yeah. Love Eddie Redmayne for Is that a just lot of for reasons. handsomeness mm, reasons? For being anyway, hot. that's my question without notice, David. Well, Unscripted as it was. We've got a huge show tonight. We're talking with uh, Tom Morris. The cricket first test is only next week I'm against excited. India. The bowl tampering scandal has been put behind us, and we're going to be talking to Tom Morris from Box Sports Cricket. Um, also, we're going to do an NBL update, plus the Boomers are playing in a few games over the weekend, so we're talking to Fox Sports broadcaster Liam Santamaria. Friend of the show. And James Coventry uh, from the ABC, also author of a book, Footballistics, which we've had a bit of a uh, flick through, and we've fancied... We're, we're footy experts, aren't we? Yeah. yeah. And he's a stats man, a he man stats of man. stats. And plus, coming up very soon is uh, Brendan Knox, who's the president of the Glamourhead Sharks. And, you know, maybe we should we could be the next Glamourhead Sharks. We could. Glamour Sharks. Do, 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 do. Nope. Okay. Now it's time for something else, Dave. What's it time for? Thank you. It's time for the... Da, da, da. Do, 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 do. Wrap, which you've just ruined. Anyway, Dave, I'm going to start with AFL. The AFL draft was held last week, televised over two compelling nights like all good miniseries are. Huh. 
The coveted number one pick went to Carlton, who, as expected, and we discussed last week. Actually, can I wait there? Did the, the footage. Why did Carlton take five minutes to pick number one when they've had 12 months to do Drama, it? Drama, mate. Drama. Well, not 12 months, but you know what I mean. It's Meryl Streep, they loved it. Oh. Anyway, they picked Sam Walsh, which we all expected. He is an all-round legend. This season, he was co-captain of the Geelong Falcons in the TAC Cup, skipper of Vic Country, led the NAB AFL Academy squad and was captain of the under-18 All-Australian team. So Sam Walsh, what on you? He has to play for Carlton, though, so not yeah, all roses. Yeah, bad. Yeah, yeah, yep. But, Dave, I went to the draft. Oh, you did too. That's right. Me and uh, the Chicks Talking Footy gals. Yeah. And I loved it. It was quite an adventure. What was, was the highlight? Tell me, like, uh, for me, it looks like something that would be boring to attend, but you but you love this kind of things, don't I you? I love this kind of thing. One of the highlights was the food table. So when you got there, there was this amazing food table of, like, charcuterie, salami, cheese, you know, anyway. So we were all filling up our plates pre-draft. Did you have to draft? The, the pieces on the platter? No, you just took them as and oh, when you okay. felt. Ooh. But then I, I looked around and people who were media like us had a certain coloured name tag and people who were like draftees and their families had different coloured name tags. And I looked around and I leaned over to Moddy, my, one of my co-hosts on Chicks Talking for me, and said, Moddy, I don't think we're supposed to be here. So we were <laughs> eating the food and it was not for us. <laughs> anyway, but the draft was a very fun night, very dramatic, lots of noises, Every team gets five mm. minutes to make a pick. At the end of the pick, there's this big boom, boom. What about an improvement? Where could they improve on the nights? Oh, let everyone eat the food. Okay, yep. okay. Um, we followed the Women's T20 World Cup with a lot of interest here on the bench. And as we predicted, I predicted this ages ago. Like it's, did, not, it's, not, it's not surprising to me. The Aussies were declared champions, winning the final over England by an impressive eight wickets. That is impressive. Bowling first, the Australians are, while well, they dropped four catches, conceded a few overthrows, missed runouts, and fluffed a host of regulation fielding attempts as England cobbled together a total of 105. Thankfully for the Australians, the bowling was superb. Led by a, a young girl that caught your eye, Beck. Georgie Wareham, 19 years old she was, Dave. 19. What were you doing when you were 19? Uh, not not a whole playing lot. for Australia, that's for no, sure. No, 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 no. Also, Dave, tennis. Tennis is approaching, but we recently this week had the John Newcomb medal. And Ash Barty and Alex Dominia were named as joint medal winners of the Johnny. Deservedly so. The judges couldn't split them. They both had stellar seasons. Barty joined Sam Stozer as only the second multiple recipient, winning for the second time in a row. There you go. And Casey Delacqua, do you know her, Dave? Yes. She's amazing. Fantastic. She won the Spirit of Tennis Award, recognising an individual who's personified the... Personified... <laughs> Personified. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the essence of leadership, passion, sportsmanship, goodwill, and dedication well done. to the sport. Congratulations to all winners on the night. Um, we've got a big show. We've got a massive show coming up. We've got Tom Morris, who's going to be talking cricket. He's from Fox Sports. We've got Liam Santamaria, also from Fox Sports. God, we're very Fox Sports heavy tonight. Um, he's going to be giving us an NBL update, plus the a preview to the Australian Boomers, who are playing uh, two games over the weekend. We've got James Coventry from the ABC, an author of Footballistics and president of the Glamour Sharks. Brendan Knox, stay tuned. You're listening to The Bench on Joy. Welcome back to The Bench on Joy. We are not too far away from test cricket being back on Aussie soil. The men's team have a massive four-test match series coming up. And I caught up with Fox Sports reporter early in the day, Tom Morris, to talk about the Aussie cricket selection and what is coming up over the summer. In terms of the others, it was good to see Finch get a half century in the first inning yesterday on a, on a really green deck, wasn't it? The Gabba was just flying around everywhere. And for him to get a half century, I think, was a good sign, if not 
a great sign, really, given that he hasn't played a lot of red ball cricket, especially against the new ball, because he came in, uh, I think it was the fifth ball of the day that Travis Dean got out. So all the talk about him opening the batting or batting in the middle or batting in the middle order, in the end, he effectively opened the batting. He was in after five balls. Yeah. Peter Hanscom, we just mentioned, made a good dart, and Peter Siddle bowled well. But again, he hasn't taken a lot of shield wickets, Peter Siddle, so we probably need him to lift a bit if he's going to be in contention to play any test cricket this summer, but he's around the mark. Yeah, just as speaking of opening batsmen, it seems like it's uh, either we have a massive shortage of opening batsmen or maybe the Australian team selection are just uh, dismissing some of the openers that we do have. Um, I'm a big fan of Joe Burns, who scored a good 96 in the Shield game this week. Uh, Matt Renshaw um, never really disgraced himself in the Australian side. Why are these guys getting dismissed? Uh, well, Renshaw's been, yeah, Renshaw's been short of runs, unfortunately, when it's mattered in these Shield games. Um, uh, he got hit on the head before the Pakistan series. He probably would have played there. He's come back and he's, he's been reasonable without being great. And in the end, not enough to, to oust Aaron Finch, who effectively took his spot in a sort of bizarre twist of fate. I think Renshaw will get back in eventually. He just needs to find some form. Joe Burns is a really interesting one. You're spot on. I think he's unlucky not to be in and around the mix. But he can't be far away. What really hurt Joe Burns was before the Ashes last summer when spots were genuinely up for grabs. You know, when, when Sean Marsh wasn't sure of his spot, um, during that Usher series. He and Cam Bancroft as well. Joe Burns didn't make any runs uh, in those, I think it was two Shield games before the Ashes squad was selected. Then he couldn't get back in. He finished the summer really well. Ended up with a good average and, and, uh, and a real stockpile of runs. But you just need to do it at the right time. As you know, if you don't do it at the right time, well, it's almost worthless. So the fact that he's doing it now after the squad's been selected, it's good, but he needs to do it before the squad is selected. That's probably what's hurting the most. Yeah, exactly. And just uh, I just think that, you know, Justin Langer being an opener himself, um, surely would have to start looking at some traditional opening batsmen for the yeah. Australian side. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, yes, you're right. Traditional opening batsman uh, is, is a batsman like Justin Langer. It is a batsman like Mark Taylor, um, like, a, like a Simon Kadic uh, as well. But equally, and probably Cam Bancroft last summer, but equally... We've had Matthew Hayden, who used to bust in the ball. Um, we've had David Warner being a huge success in recent years. Verinda Saywag for India. So for every Alistair Cook, there's probably another hard-hitting opening batsman on the other side as well. Bit of a yin and yang type situation. And I think it's good to have a part. I mean, in the end, we talk about the way players play, Dave, but what we really want is just the two best batsmen possible. And if they happen to be two batsmen that are a little bit more circumspect, like Cowan, then so be it. If they happen to be two players that go after it, and so bad. Average means everything, I think, opening the batting, almost regardless of strike rate. And at the moment, you talk about a shortage of batsmen around the country. I think there's probably a shortage of batsmen around the country making hundreds and averaging 45 plus. Yeah, they're, just, yep. they're just not there. That's so probably across the board from one to six, not just one. I keep harping on about Joe Burns, and I think it's, uh, it's probably because it's a reflection of my own uh, batting career of, of being really <laughs> boring in the middle. So maybe that's why I keep sticking up for blokes like Joe Burns and, uh, oh. and Matt Renshaw. Um, on, the other, on the other side of things, uh, Glenn Maxwell, uh, a player falling to the wayside this week in the Shield games, uh, although he's, he's in next for the Vicks. Um, what does test future look like, do you think, Tom? I think he'll play test cricket again. He's certainly, well, I would have said three months ago, he's more selectable um, on the subcontinent and against Pakistan and India and Sri Lanka, but then they didn't take him, even though they told him not to play county cricket or go on the Australia mm-hmm. A tour because he was in line to be selected. I thought that was, well, I think Bazaar's putting it likely. I think it was a shocking call not to at least take him in the squad. Uh, Glenn Maxwell's 30, so he should be in his absolute prime. I'm playing more shield cricket than he is, and if that means missing the odd T20 for Australia, then I think that's what needs to happen, although I'm not sure it actually will happen, because that will allow him to get that. I mean, the fact that his second ball ducky made against Queensland at the Gabba, 
That was his first red ball game since March. Now, how do we expect him to go out there on a pitch like mm, that yep. and make runs when he hasn't faced a red ball in a game at any level since March? It's a really difficult one. I don't, I'm not sure he's necessarily in our best test 11. He's not far away. I think he's probably around the mark. But I think overseas, he's certainly in our best test 11. Uh, and I think we need, it's a bit of a horses-for-courses approach. And I think it's certainly a one-day cricket and, and T20 cricket. He should be batting in the top five in those formats. So... I'd still consider him a real chance to play Test cricket again, but I just think he needs to play more Shield cricket to put his name forward, and also to get that experience again and learn the craft. Yeah, he's probably right in the mix in that no, number six spot. And uh, Mitch Marsh currently sits at number six, and he, he averages just over twenty six in uh, Test cricket. Yeah, is he a favourite of Aussie selectors, or is there just a drought of number six batsmen? I guess. <laughs> well, he's picked as an all rounder, which I'm not a massive fan of. If he averaged twenty six with a bat, in saying that. He, his Ashes series, I mean, it's almost it's flattering that average of 26 because his Ashes series was so brilliant when he came in the team in the Perth test and then he helped save the game in Melbourne. Then he did well in Sydney as well. Um, and before then, he'd hardly made any runs at all. I think he made 150 in 25 innings. Uh, he needs to make more runs. That's the reality. And if he's not making runs, then who, who cares if he can bowl a little bit? Because he's got an average of a number seven or a number eight at the moment. I'm willing to give him this summer. I think six tests this summer, we can really get an idea of how good a batsman he is. If he can average 40 for the summer, then he's probably done his job. But certainly averaging 26 isn't good enough. One of my bugbears, though, is is how people compare or they group the Marshes together. And I think they've both been given a free ride. Sean Marsh has got a terrific record uh, in all conditions all over the world. Now, he's had poor series as well. Don't get me wrong, he's not on Bradman. But he's made runs in Sri Lanka, he's made runs in England, he's made runs in Australia, he's made runs in T20 cricket, one-day cricket, and test cricket. Um, so I think he's a completely different kettle of fish to Mitch Marsh, who you're right, has probably given a little bit of the red carpet treatment. But in saying that, which other all-rounder are you going to pick if you want an all-rounder? Is Marcus Stoinis ready? He might be ready, but he's only made one shield hundred himself. So there's not a lot out there. Moses Reeks is probably more of a batsman these days. And so is Hilton Cartwright. So there's not a lot of other options if they want a fifth bowler. We are talking all the latest in cricket with Fox Sports commentator and writer Tom Morris. Do you think that maybe that the top five is also putting pressure on Mitch Marsh as in, oh, yeah. as our top five is not really performing either? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, look at this, look at the, look at our best number sixes of the last 25 years, and it's not a massive list. But Ricky Ponting started at number yep. six because he was allowed to start at number six because the top order was so strong. And Damien Martin was the same. Steve Wall was there. Darren Lehman batted there as well and made Test hundreds. So when you come in at uh, it's common then you come in at four for three hundred. It's a lot easier than coming in at four for seventy five or four for a hundred. Number six should be the entry position, shouldn't it? Then you can graduate up if need be. At the moment, um, the entry level position is really where, where wherever we need to plug a hole, and that could be number three, it could be opening, it could be four or five, uh, which makes it a lot more difficult. You're right. Yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned it earlier as well. Our bowling attack uh, is obviously our strength. We've got Cummins, Stark, Hazelwood, and, and Line. Just how much pressure is on those four to, to help us try oh. to win games? Yeah, it's huge. Uh, I think we'll look back at this bowling quartet, and I hope it's, they've still got another... Well, there's no reason that, why they can't play another two, three, four years together uh, as long as injuries don't come along and, and wipe off any of their careers. And certainly at the moment, Touchwood, they seem to be healthy. I think we can look back, we're going to look back at this quartet and see them as the best bowling quartet in the history of Australian cricket. Um, we've had terrific bowling attacks before, so I'm, I'm thinking of McGrath, Gillespie, Lee and Ward. But they weren't together for a long time. They, they were around the mark for a while, but they didn't really play together for a long period of time to sustain success as a four. 
this fall, there's no reason why they can't play, you know, in a total seven or eight years together. And I think we'll look back and see that they are unbelievable as a, as a quartet. Yeah, we have yep. the best finger spinner we've ever produced and a left arm quick and a tall right arm quick. And then a, a, Cummins is really a bustling seam bowler who's terrific at reverse swinging and could also bat at number eight. He could even push up to number seven maybe in the future. So they, they, they have a big summer ahead of them because... I know as well as you do, they're probably not going to have the runs on the board that they had last summer to defend, so the job is going to be there and the pressure is going to be on. Yeah, we could probably talk selection forever, even James Patterson names comes to, comes to mind. But yeah. um, anyway, Fox Sports will be broadcasting the, the first test after securing the rights alongside Channel 7. What can we expect to see this summer on the Fox? Uh, lots of cricket. Every game ad-free is probably the main thing, like you've never seen it before in 4K. So there's been a lot made of this, what is 4K? Every TV or or everyone's seen HD, well, 4K is five times the quality of high definition, um, which is terrific to watch for a sport like cricket with such with such quick movements. Um, I love watching surfing and also golf, and they're equally as good in 4K. But, but I think probably the main attraction to the average punter is the commentary team, the freshness. It's probably a, a cross between what Channel 9 was with the old school um, and what... Uh, what Channel 10 was with sort of the, the bells and whistles. I think Fox is really trying to find that happy medium um, to make it entertaining but not force but not force it, but also needs to be informative. So it's led by Shane Warne and Adam Gilchrist, but the team is is really quite diverse and multicultural as well. There's Guha from England, who's a really, really good caller, big fan of her work. Mark Howard as well. Didn't play test cricket for Australia, which you probably wouldn't see too much on the old Channel 9 commentary. People who didn't play test cricket at all as commentators, maybe aside from Mark Nicholas, but he's a central component. And then you've got others like Kerry O'Keefe, who I think is probably the most underrated analyst in the game. Uh, he's not just a joker at all. He's, he's able to see the game, read the game, and but more importantly than any of that, he's able to actually articulate it to the viewers and the fans in a really easy-to-understand way. So I'm looking forward to seeing what Fox Crew has to offer, um, and I think it's going to be really good coverage in a and a really entertaining summer of cricket. We look forward to seeing how the summer unfolds and we'll be watching very closely come the first test that starts December 6th and can be seen on Fox Sports. Thanks for joining us on the bench, Tom. No worries, Dave. Thanks, mate. That was Tom Morris, cricket commentator and writer for Fox Sports. You're listening to The Bench on Joy. We love talking footy here on the bench and we have on the line to chat about his book, Footballistics, which we think would be a great Christmas present, is author, ABC journalist, James Coventry. Welcome to the bench. Thanks for having me on, guys. Now, firstly, uh, some people just love stats. Where did your love for stats come from? <laughs> well, I think I grew up with it. Uh, I just sort of naturally gravitated to it when I was a kid and that really the first sport that put me in in that way was cricket. I just... I think it was on about seven or eight in one of the Ashes tours. I used to um, get the newspaper each day and I'd go straight to the uh, to the cricket section, cut out the scorecards. I had this big scrapbook. So that was my introduction to stats. But then I got, um, through the 90s when I was growing up, you know, uh, champion data came on the scene and fantasy football and all that sort of thing. And I got into fantasy football. So that was my entree, really. And with cricket scoring, did you, have you ever had the, the chance to get into the scorecard and, and mark it yourself? Like, that uh, seems a, a very stat-based thing to do as well. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I haven't. I, I played a bit of cricket um, when I was younger, but uh, I never actually became a, a, an official scorer, but maybe I should do that now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm retired and I don't play anymore. <laughs> now, James, are you, I guess in terms of footy and cricket and all sports, really, are you impressed with the amount of stats that are available to us as an audience, or do you think there should be more or less? What do you, what do you think people make of stats from a supporter perspective? 
Well, I think there's there's a fairly good availability for, for the general punter these days. Champion Data does a terrific job uh, collating all their stats. So when I was writing the book, I got to spend a bit of time with them. It's incredible the, the amount of um, effort that goes into what they do. They've got a, a basically a team of 10 people working on each AFL game. They've got five people at the ground and then five people back at a bunker in Southbank um, feeding all the stats through. And, you know, they've got callers, collectors, people doing interchange and all that sort of stuff. Um, and the numbers really can tell you the story of the game. I mean, you can look at a, a score sheet or a running sheet that they uh, champion provide and you really get the, a sense of, of how the game played out with it, even if you, you haven't had a chance to actually look at the footage. So um, it is uh, quite incredible that what the numbers can tell you. A lot of people say that there's probably too much numbers in the game these days and the media has become almost too reliant on, on it and, and particularly broadcasters. Um, you know, they use it as, as a, an easy crutch to uh, try and explain things without properly, properly putting them into context. Um, that was one thing that I was keen to do with Footballistics is um, make sure that we were using data to be able to, you know, put it into context and, and properly explain some truisms and, you know, things that often go unchallenged uh, in, this, in the sport of Australian rules football. Well, it's funny you say that. There's a lot of um, these unwritten rules that, we all assume are statistically based. One of them that I'm prone to yell at the television is goals in minutes, goals in minutes. Because my dad, my dad told me when I was about seven that as long as there's you know enough minutes left, the team can kick that many goals in a minute. Am I completely wrong? No, it's funny. Lee Matthews was the guy that that um, popularised that, um, and it's often been referred to uh, these days as the Lee Matthews theory is, as you say, yeah, goals a minute. That's one of the things that we looked at in the book. And actually, it holds up pretty well. Um, uh, you know, if, if, it's, if a team, um, you know, that, that does, is, is a pretty good indicator that a team's going to win a match um, if they've got that goals and minutes thing late in the fourth quarter. But there's other sort of um, things that we, we look at the book, you know, that 100-point rule, the first team to 100 points. Um, uh, the 30-point rule, if you get 30 points ahead, you, you're more likely to win, win the game. Or, you know, it, it becomes almost a fait accompli that you win the game. That's, those are the sorts of things that we look, looked at during the book. Do you have any percentages that we, that for, the, for the first team to score 100 points? What, like, what's, the, what's the percentage of that happening and oh, them going over, to win? Over 97% actually. But wow. it, it, um, I mean, that is probably not one of the, the great rules because, you know, if you if you if you get to 100 points, it, it's it's going to be happening late in the game, and you know often it, the first team to get to 100 points, the other team's not going to get there anyway, so they're going to win the game. So that was that was one of the ones. Probably didn't hold up as strongly. I reckon the Lee Matthews theory was was one that that did though. I'm actually disappointed. I thought my dad made that up, so I'm going to have to... <laughs> He's claimed it. He's claimed, He's claimed it, it as his I'm own. Lethal. Um, we're talking... Le- Le- yeah, Lethal, that was one of his presets, and he used to tell it to his players all the time. And it, you'll hear it. Bruce McAvaney often reference, makes reference to it in the Channel 7 commentary, particularly if, if Lethal's commentating with him. And I, I guarantee when you're on the losing side, you're also trying to make that calculation <laughs> as well. And you start to think, I don't think it's going to be possible. We need to get the ball to the other side first. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Now, we're talking to James Coventry, ABC journalist and author of Footballistics. James, as a supporter of a non-Victorian club, I'm tr- always trying to find stats that support my club being disadvantaged. Now, one of the big ones is about how travel affects interstate teams. And people often talk about how interstate players can't get to 300 games because of the travels. Is that a statistic that's proven? 
Yeah, well, that's uh, another of the studies that we did specially for the book. Um, one of our contributors, Matt Cowgill, was a Western Australian, had a particular interest in this being a West Coast fan. And you'll know that um, of the, the two Perth-based teams, Matthew Pavlich is actually the only player from those teams to have reached 300 games. He, he, got, he played over 350, but uh, all those great you know, uh, West Coast players, you know, the Jakovic's and all those sorts of guys, Cox, you know, they had fantastic careers, but there was a, there's a huge drop-off rate between um, about 250 games and 300 for West, Western Australian players compared to players from other states. Um, you sort of see it a little bit from players from Queensland and New South Wales, but South Australia and Victoria, not so much. Um, and we, we sort of posit that that is due to the travel that the Western Australian players have to do because obviously half their games each year they're travelling back and forward across the Nullarbor and, and there's huge distances in the context of world sport to have to do a trip like that um, every fortnight basically throughout the season. So we actually show in the book through that study that you can see in the statistical output of players from Western Australia there's a massive decline um, between that sort of period from 250 games to 300 and it's just a, a fact that uh, almost none of them reached 300 games. Pavlich is the only exception. So you basically say that Matthew Pavlich could have played about 700 games <laughs> if he was a Victorian? <laughs> yeah, well, it would have been uh, interesting to see. He might have broken Boomer's record and actually it's funny in, in the book we, uh, as sort of the exposition for that chapter, we use Harvey, uh, the, the comparison between Brent Harvey and Pavlich and um, I interviewed um, both of them for the book and Harvey told me that he texted um, Pav when he played his 350th game and he said look that achievement is sort of overshadows what I've been able to do in breaking the, the game's record because you've had to do it under those conditions, which I found really fascinating. Mm. Wow. Were there any stats that really caught you by surprise and, and actually made you not really believe them? <laughs> We, we try to do some fun ones for the book. So, um, yeah, there's a range of things in footy that um, often get trotted out by commentators. Um, you know, each season you hear the same sort of things. You know, if, if there's a particularly bad period of goal kicking, you know, you'll hear the commentators say, well, goal kicking's the one thing that's never improved in footy in, you know, decades. You know, the, or, you know, some people even go so far as to say that goal kicking these days isn't as, as good as the days of Hudson and, and Coleman and that sort of stuff. We, we can um, actually explicitly say that's untrue. Goal kicking over the past 20 years has been better than it has been in its 160-year history of, of footy. Um, in fact, every I think it's the past 20 seasons are the top 20 seasons for accuracy in, in the history of footy. So that shows that uh, modern players with their extra training and, and all the the, um, the stuff that goes into their preparation, they've actually got better. You know, they've got better equipment. The, the balls are better these days. They've got better boots and all that sort of stuff. So, um, but, so that's one thing that we were able to say, that goal kicking, you know, that it's never improved. That, that's, that's wrong. Blonde head players winning the Brownlow medal. That was another one I was really keen to say. You remember around the turn of the century when we Woden and Crawford and Ackermanis won in, in a successive years. And um, I remember back in the media, I was working as a journal in those years and Harold Sun and all those sorts of places were saying, you know, you've got to get, get the peroxide out to get a vote. And that's been something that um, has sort of persisted throughout years. You know, if, if a player 
I'm a Crows fan, so I remember when Rory Atkins last season, he, he dyed his hair blonde and um, the explanation came out. It was to attack the umpire's eye to get a, a brown eye. Um, and uh, so we wanted to set out and say, say, well, can we, is there actually anything in this? You know, a lot of people say it. it do umpires actually get attracted by um, distinctive appearance? And the answer that we came up with was yes. In fact, blonde-haired players um, poll more Brownlow votes compared to their peers when you consider all the other factors that might go towards, um, you know, attracting Brownlow votes, whether that be their experience, their talent, um, uh, their leadership, you know, are they the captain, their jumper numbers, all the, all the sorts of things that might attract the umpire's attention or, or, you know, lend them, you know, the ability to win a vote. Actually, hair colour does stand up as being significant. So blonde hair players poll but more than the rest, but the most Brownlow votes go to players that are bald, believe it or not. So, Gary Ablett. Um, mm. Gary Ablett, Chris Judd. So they've actually had some pretty good bold players over the past couple of decades, but um, we were able to compare apples with apples, so to speak. So we were comparing you know, the, uh, an, an equal bald, bald-headed player to an equal brown-headed player to an equal blonde-headed player. <laughs> so it, was, it was a fascinating study to do, and it was actually probably... One of the hardest ones to do because with the stats that we use for a lot of the rest of the book, um, you know, we are obviously got a lot of help from Champion Data with who collect kicks and handballs and marks and all that sort of stuff. But hair colour was one thing that we couldn't have a data set for, so we had to make our own data set. And I sat down there and and uh, spent weeks on end um, sort of collating information about players' hair colour by going through photographic databases. So that was a really time-consuming one, but I was glad that we did it in the end. Now, James, I'm wondering what kind of supporter you are to watch the football with, because I'm a Crows <laughs> supporter as well. Do you, sit at, do you sit at the showdown and go, oh, Charlie Dixon, you've only got a 47% chance of kicking that goal from a 43-degree <laughs> angle? Like, are you that kind of supporter? No... I can't, not really, no. Well, actually, I, um, I'm a boundary rider for ABC Grandstand, so I, I, I watch most of my footy sitting there in a work capacity, but I, I, I do find it hard to sort of keep that, that space <laughs> element out of it sometimes, yeah, I've got to admit. Well, you've got 88% of leaving the club. Like most Adelaide Pros players. Ooh, sorry, oh, sorry, on. sorry. Pick your audience, Dave. <laughs> you can find you can find the book Footballistics wherever you buy books or eBooks, and I'm sure we'll be reading it over the summer to prepare for the 2019 season. I think it'd be a great Christmas present. I think I might buy it for you, Dave. Well, thanks so much, James, uh, for joining us on the bench, and uh, we hope to speak soon. Thanks very much for having me, guys. Cheers. The NBL season has delivered some fantastic viewing for those getting to the games and Fox Sports have broadcast the game so, so well. To talk more about the NBL, we're joined by Fox Sports commentator and lover of basketball, Liam Santamaria. Welcome back to the bench. Well, thanks for having me back on. We spoke to you earlier in the season. Now, we were excited by the NBL then, but it has Mm. gone up a few more notches since. Just how good has the season been so far? Yeah, well, it's been great. Um, so many close games. Scoring is up right across the league. We've had a bunch of games go to overtime. Um, all the talent that we were excited about preseason has uh, has been on display. Um, the biggest one of all, obviously, Andrew Bogut, has more than lived up to expectations. And um, it's just been a super fun season to watch. The, the, the big teams that we thought were going to be up the top of the standings have been good right from the get-go. Um, so it's been fun to, to watch them battle it out. And um, obviously, we've already got a few teams that have 
that are up against it and, and need to sort of turn things around over the, the second um, part of the season. But, um, you know, it's all shaping up really nicely. And I understand you guys have made it to a couple of games. Is that right? Yes, we did. We ended up going to the uh, the Cup Eve game between the Kings and United. It was such a yep. great spectacle. We I've loved it so much. I literally never had so much fun, Liam. You should have seen me. I got in there. Wow. I was after free stuff. I went and bought a hat. I had to have <laughs> merch. I love that I got to wow. stand up and clap. I've literally never had so much fun in my life. Yeah, that's cool. Well, I mean, I've been saying for a number of years, especially here in Melbourne, the, the, the show they put on there at Melbourne United game is is awesome. Mm. And I, I've been saying it before. I mean, if you get to... You might not have been to the NBL for, for a while, but if you get to a game... Um, you'll love it, and you'll want to go back again. I, I was, I'll say, I guarantee you won't be disappointed. So, and that game especially, the oh, Sydney Kings, Melbourne tremendous. United Cup Eve was, you know, a sold out stadium and and an awesome game. So nicely, you'll be back. You guys will be back soon. Absolutely. My my biggest disappointment though, Liam, was I like to really invest, and I wanted to choose a favourite mm-hmm. player. And before the game, mm-hmm. I spent a long time, didn't I, Dave, <laughs> trawling through the players, and I said, okay. Chris Golding is going to be my favourite player. And then I okay. got there and I found out he was injured and he wasn't playing. <laughs> and then I was all at sea and I didn't know what to do. Yeah, well, he's easy to support. He's got that sort of Orlando Bloom kind of look about him. <laughs> that was not yeah. lost on me, Liam. That was not <laughs> lost on me. <laughs> yeah, and he's, you know, he's a, he's a super talent, one of the best players in the league. But, um, yeah, no, he sat that one out. But he's been back on floor um, recently and, and playing very well and, I tell you, you are. Um, there are so many players to choose from to support. I mean, Casper Ware, one of yeah. Chris Golding's teammates, that always has Oz- a smile on his face, and and Mitch McCarron, the real love as well. of the game. Mitch McCarron's been such a sorry? great. Mitch McCarron has been such a great pickup for Melbourne yeah. United. He's another one, mm. I think, who stepped in the place of Chris Golding mm. that night. He, how have mm. you seen his impact for Melbourne this year? Well, he's been sort of the Swiss Army knife that they kind of expected he would be. Um, they brought him in. It was. You know, when they signed him in off in the off season, the question was, well, how does he fit? Because, you know, if he's a point guard, they've already got Casper um, Ware. If he's a shooting guard, they've already got Chris Golding. If he's a small forward, they they didn't have him then, but we knew they were going to bring in an import small forward like DJ Kennedy. So, where does he fit? And the answer is, he fits a little bit of everywhere. And um, with that injury to Chris Golding and um, some some injury at times to DJ Kennedy, and then. The ability to just play multiple positions. He's second in the team in minutes after the first third of the season. We know he won that game with the tip in on the basically on the buzzer the other night, and um, I think he's been sensational. And he's um, he's delivered everything that they want from him. They they can start him if they need to. They can bring him off the bench, and I think um, he's going to be really really important for them as they make a run at a second straight title. Now, Liam, now I've bought the hat, I'm very emotionally committed to United, but I'm worried about the Perth Wildcats. They seem to be their main contender. Do you think it's a gap between those two and the rest of the competition? Good question, and you should be worried about the Wildcats if you're invested in United Mm. because even though they are the defending champs, the history of the NBL tells us that the championship goes through Western Australia. So they're going to be right in the thick of things at the end. We know that. I think um, you might be underselling the Sydney Kings a little bit there. Um, Andrew Boger, Jerome Randall, Kevin Leish, oodles of talent. They're starting to work it out. They very nearly beat Melbourne on their home floor just a few Mm -hmm. nights ago. And um, whilst their record at the moment isn't anything to massively 
write home about, just five wins and four losses, um, they are going to be right in amongst it alongside Perth and Melbourne come finals time. You can bank that. And um, especially with the way Andrew Bogut is playing. So um, I think you could potentially argue that that gap exists after those three, but certainly Sydney are in that mix. How what's what's sort of been the most exciting thing for you this so far this season? Like who's caught your eye? Which team? Which coach? What's what's sort of been the headlines that you've loved the most? Good question. Um, I reckon just the play of the Wildcats, um, which is a little boring in that you know they're, they're they're just so successful year in and year out. But I just I love that. You know, every year they're in the finals, and it's just remarkable how their consistent excellence and with some of their key pieces out. Um, they've just been able to kind of grind out wins and they've shown extraordinary character along the way. So for them to be 10-1 and one at this FIBA break, right up above everyone else at the top of the ladder um, with you know some key guys missing a whole bunch of games, I think that's, been, that's probably been the storyline for me. And then the second one is probably how good Andrew Bogut has been. Um, like I said, the Kings haven't blown the league out of the water in terms of wins and losses so far, but Bogut has been more than we could have hoped. And for a guy coming in with the amount of hype that he entered the season with to deliver to that extent, I think um, has been a huge boost for the league. Liam Santamaria is on the line, Fox Sports commentator, and we're chatting all things basketball. You have a column on nbl.com.au, studs and duds, Liam. Um, <laughs> I do. <laughs> I want to know who the duds are. Well, the duds, they, they sort of change week to week. There's no, you know, you can't have someone just consistently in the duds. <laughs> Unfortunately, the refs were in the duds this week, which was, you know, not fun, but had to throw them in there because they had a few howlers across the round that I think had a big influence on um, on a few games. Um, I also threw Kevin Leash in there, which was hard to do, two-time MVP and multiple championship winner um, and just an all-round nice guy too but he had a couple of possessions three key mistakes I guess in the last minute of that crucial game against Melbourne United that he would love to have have back so I threw him in there and the other one were the New Zealand Breakers um, who went 0-2 against the Wildcats really should have got at least one of those games lost in overtime at home had the game in the bag over in Western Australia, but just they're struggling defensively and they weren't able to get either of those wins. So I threw them in there. Do you think it's? Do you think duds is a bit harsh? No, no I like it. I've got a studs and duds okay. section on my Tinder profile, so it's fine. <laughs> That's another day. Uh, <laughs> Liam, Liam, also. Well, now that, we're getting personal. <laughs> that layup I could have made, so I reckon that's 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 dud him up. Hmm. Hey, well, he's dudded. <laughs> on the record, Liam, the uh, the competition's on international break at the moment. The national side's preparing mm. for games against Iran and Qatar. What should we look forward to, and do you think we'll qualify for the 2019 World Cup? Yes, we'll qualify. We're one win away from qualifying. We just need to grab one of these games and we're in. Um, and ideally, we could do that on Friday night against Iran, but it's not a lay-down Mazair. Um, Iran are pretty tough. Um, they're, they're, they're second in our pool uh, behind us in terms of qualifying. They're probably going to qualify themselves even if they lose to us on Friday night. Um, 
And we have played them previously at, at an Asian Cup, and um, we beat them reasonably soundly, but they're they're not an easy team. So I think that'll be a, that has the potential to be a pretty good game, like it was when we played the Philippines here at Margaret Court Arena. So it's back there in Melbourne on Friday night. I reckon that'd be a really good game to go to if you're in Melbourne and you want to watch the green and gold because um, it has the potential, like I say, to be a good game and it also has the potential to be the game that locks us in to next year's World Cup. Um, but if we look, if we something if something goes horribly wrong and we don't get that win, then hopefully we'll be able to lock it down against Qatar on Monday night and um, put ourselves in the mix and um, start preparing for, for next year's World Cup. Well, I think it's surely going to be a win-win uh, Friday night and Monday night. Um, we are running out of time, Liam. Thanks so much for coming on. You've uh, you've generated both our loves for basketball. I've even downloaded the, the NBL League Pass. I'm trying to follow as much as I can. So, oh, good Thanks stuff. so much for that, Liam. Uh, uh, and I hope to, we hope to speak to you again on the bench. And I'll see you at the next uh, Melbourne United home game. You certainly will, Liam. <laughs> see ya. <laughs> Bye. Thanks, Thank you. That was Liam Santamaria, Fox Sports Broad. You're listening to The Bench on Joy 94.9. We're off to a really good start. It's Beck and Dave as per usual. And we've got a guest in the studio. We love guests in the studio. And we've got the president of the Glamourhead Sharks. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me, guys. How are you this evening? His name's Brendan, so let's call him that, Dave. Hello. He's a guest. You didn't introduce his name. Oh, yeah. Well, everybody knows who he is. Well, yeah. I mean, you're basically a celebrity, Brendan. Let's oh, be honest. Thank you very much. I'll take mm. that on board. I won't sing my Glamourhead Shark song again just for you. I did like the reference out there before. It was um, very timely and highly catchy. So Thank you. Maybe you could start it as a chant I, I, I think comps. you might put it on hold. It's slightly repetitive and catchy and we'll just okay. maybe <laughs> leave it there. I'll take the criticism. <laughs> Always happens on this show. Now, Brendan, for those who are living under the water... That's like living under a rock, Dave, but the water. Who and what are the Glamourhead Sharks? So the Glamourhead Sharks are Melbourne's um, only LGBTI aquatics swim club. Um, They have a history dating back to 2001 and we have lots of swimming activities in open water, in training. Uh, We represent the club training and competing interstate, internationally. Um, with our own swim meet coming up this weekend. So we're a very proud and very fit bunch of people in the water multiple times a week getting out there and doing some swimming. I probably need some swimming as well, actually. I should come across, come along to the meet. Tell us about the meet this weekend. So we're hosting our uh, biannual meet at Harold Holt Pool um, down in down in Glen Iris, Melbourne, I think it is, down yep, at Harold Holt, yep, Holt, Harold Holt Pool. From Saturday afternoon from 4.30, we're going to be lovely blessed with some fantastic weather coming up this weekend. So it's an outdoor pool. Sometimes you take the mm. you take the risk of having it outdoors. You could have some thunderstorm conditions like you do in Sydney at the moment or we're going to have a fantastic evening, 30 degrees, blue skies and hosting a swim meet with all the other Masters swimming competition uh, swimming teams throughout Victoria. Is Harold Holt Pool the worst name for a pool in the history of the world? It would have to be. Honestly. It would absolutely have to be the one. worst like, what name. What were they thinking? Well, we've, got, we've had so many fantastic Australian swimmers in, the, in our history. Surely like they can Susie have a pool The Susie O'Neill Pool. Yes. The Ian Thorpe Pool. The Daniel Kowalski Pool. These are all better ideas. They are. They anyway, are. we'll move on. Can anyone be a Glamourhead Shark? Everyone's welcome to come along and have a swim. Um... One of the things that's part of the club is that we're not necessarily a learn-to-swim type of club where there has to be some form of a, some basic skills to start off with in the pool. To so you can't have, wear floaties? Oh, I wouldn't say floaties, no, but we use our own floating devices okay. to help us in the pool with 
kickball, um, pool boys and huh? flippers and king, pool uh, boys and flippers to help us along. But um, uh, everyone's welcome to come along. But there, as I just as I said, there's a bit of a basic requirement to have a few intermittent swimming lessons yourselves. But other than that, come along. If you're confident in the swim, want to have a good workout, come along. We're always welcome to have you. So is there races this weekend? Is that what you're saying? Like, can yes, you yes. Is there gold medals, silver medals on, on display? Yes, Chocolate so, medals. Yeah, can I win something? Chocolate medals, lots of uh, awards going out. So we've got, um, uh, it's a bit of a sprint series kind of swim meet. So we've got some longer distance races of 200 metre races and we have some short, sharp, sweet 50 metre sprints as well. So we've got about 10 events that are going on, so it's an action-packed program ahead. Wonderful. How long have you been involved with the Glenhead Sharks and what sort of brought you to the sport of swimming? Um, I grew up as a swimmer myself, as a teenager, and I was introduced to the club um, at their midsummer stall um, back in about 2010 and been an active passionate members since then and been with the club all the way through it. So I uh, got involved seeing us at Midsummer. We'll be up there coming in a few months' time at the Carnival. We've got some fantastic things organised in the with all the other Melbourne support clubs. So there'll be some activities to definitely be seeing us there. And, yeah, that's how I got involved. Now, I've heard of white line fever with footy, <laughs> but is black line fever a real thing in swimming? I will definitely have to answer this on behalf of our distance swimmers, especially the 1,500 metre swimmers in the um, club. Yes, it is. Ah. It definitely is. So what happens in the pool? What some of the tactics you can sort of put off your competitors? Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say uh, tactics. It's more pacing yourself against the person next to you and, and, mm. and you get into the, get into the rhythm, um, definitely staring down at that black line if you're in a 25 or 50 metre pool in some of those longer races and you can definitely pace yourself off whoever you're swimming against. You can see them on the corner of your eye each side and and pace yourself and go from there. So it is quite competitive, yes. I'm worried I get really bored and I get distracted and I swim into someone else's lane. Yeah, that could happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We've got the lane ropes there too. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one thing I have an issue with swimming is I forget when to breathe in and breathe out (laughs) and I actually come back up to get some oxygen and I end up blowing out. And then I go back inside the pool and I can't breathe. I don't know that Brendan and I are the professionals that can help you with that, Dave. If you don't, if you can't breathe, you've got bigger no, issues. No, it's the breathing coordination. You know what I'm talking about, Brendan. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, all, it's all about your rhythm and your technique and you you um, you um get into a pattern and you, you work on it. So wow. you'll get there. You'll get there. You need to jump in the pool and have a swim and go for it. Now, <laughs> I'll, I'll try my best. It's summer to, season coming up. I might so. have to come along. I might have to get the... I think, don't think my summer body's ready yet. Um, the Glamish Head Sharks are often involved in international competition. Where should we be keeping a lookout for them? In the So we had a very dedicated uh, team recently go over to the Paris Gay Games. We had about 20 of the team going over there. And with very proudly saying we had a huge success in the pool. We came home with about 29 medals oh, wow. from that meet. So um, that's our most recent... Uh, international meet, but there's normally uh, one or two throughout the year. Probably the next one, um, a few of the dedicated swimmers are working towards is there is a big England meet in New York in the middle of next year, in 2019. But what the um, important part of that meet is that Melbourne will be hosting that, uh, oh, the International um, Gay and Lesbian Aquatics Foundation oh. swim meet in Melbourne in 2020. Oh. Coming up in February, March 2020, which is amazing. So a lot of us are going to go over there and hopefully promote the event and um, rustle up word and bring all our wonderful uh, swimming brother and sisters and teams. Yep. To tell them to come over to Melbourne and show off our wonderful city of ours. So 29 medals coming back from Paris. Were any of those medals in your baggage? 
I was lucky to receive one myself. Yes. Yeah. What's yes. your uh, race of choice, Brendan? Oh, I'm, I'm a bit. I'm a bit strange. I'm a bit of a sucker for um, the hard swims where I like to do um, individual medleys uh-huh. and oh, butterfly. Yeah. So ah. it's not necessarily the easiest ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they're a bit of bit of training goes involved with those. They're not hard. Uh, they're not not easy, but. Yeah, you'll find, I mean, you'll Dave, find me swimming those. Dave can't even breathe, so he'd struggle to do four strokes in one well, race. It's, it's, it's quite funny. Some of the really sprints ones, you don't breathe at all. Oh, that's oh, right you up your That's alley. the one I need to do, actually. That is. So, uh, the the Head Sharks, why is it important to have an LGBTI swimming club? We're, we're very lucky that um, we're, Melbourne's very has a large component of sporting teams and sporting activities. And it's really great that the team's available for those people that are there. Some of the things that people don't necessarily know about the club is that we have a large uh, representation in open water swimming. So our open water swimming starts uh, coming up in a few months and we're represented at things like Peter Pub or um, down at Mount Martha on Australia Day. It's really important to have that that presence throughout there, especially when we kind of are very proud of hosting the, t- the event coming up this weekend with all the other Masters teams going out there. And it is the only LGBTI community, uh, team that's available. So it's very important that we have a presence in the local teams and on the sporting uh, the sporting fixture as well. And for people who want to get involved or come down and spectate this week's meet, yeah, please, how do we, how do we get involved? Everyone is welcome to come along to Harold Holt Pool from 4.30 on Saturday afternoon. Um, the club trains at various different locations throughout the city. Um, so probably the best and important way to get in contact with the club is via our the usual club website, search Glamourheads um, on the socials, Facebook, Instagram. Got a big presence going on there. So a lot of time you can't hide from us. Well, you'll find us very easy. Even yeah. if you don't want to. Even if, you wanna, you even, even if you want to, even if you want to come around and just support or be there, it's always welcome. So please come along. Fantastic. Well, I we'll have to check to see if our speedos and our bikinis fit, and we might take along to this Sunday's right. meet. We might get you to learn how to breathe. <laughs> exactly. Thanks so much for coming in and promoting this week's event, and just uh, giving us a bit of an insight to what the Melbourne Climber Head Sharks are all about. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again. Thank you very much, guys. Thank Swim you for being well. here. <laughs> You're listening to the bench on Joy. Well, we're wrapping up the bench. Well, we're just, we've rammed so many uh, guests in. We've got to just wrap up straight after. It's been a big game, Dave, a game of four quarters, yep, a game of two halves. We've made as many three-pointers as we can. I think we're ahead, and I think we have a couple of timeouts, and then we'll get going. We're just looking for the four points at this stage. Um, episode eight in the bank, I guess, as they say. We had so many guests, I can't even remember who they were. We had Tom Morris from Fox Sports Cricket. Great chat coming into the cricket season. There is so many things to talk about, and we, we actually ran out of time. Um, talking about just the team selection for next Thursday's test match against India. We had Liam Santamaria from Fox Sports talking about just where the NBL is at right now and also the upcoming Australian Boomer Games. We had James Coventry, ABC author of Footballistics, and we had Brendan Knox from the Glamourhead Sharks as well. A jam-packed <laughs> show in on the bench. Beck, how are you feeling? I'm exhausted, Dave. I need to do some stretches and uh, have a good lie down. <laughs> <laughs> the lactic acid build-up is, uh, is enormous in the studio. Anyway. We'll see you in the ice bath. You're listening to The Bench on Joy.